Welcome to another episode of Reflections from a Distance. My name is Justice De Los Santos. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Amani Morrison. Amani earned her BA in American Studies at the University of Richmond, where she was magna cum laude, then earned her PhD in African American and African Diaspora Studies from UC Berkeley. She is currently an assistant professor of African American Literature and Culture in the English Department at Georgetown University. Amani, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, as always, here. good to talk to you. Uh, for those who don't know, and I don't know why like anyone except the maybe 15 to like 20 people in the class would know, uh, I had you as a professor uh, for my R1B back in fall of 2017, which feels like another lifetime ago. So it's great to be able to have the opportunity to once again chat and uh, share a space. The place that I want to start of like another lifetime ago is it's we're basically at like the five month point of the shelter in place the quarantine it does like vary depending on where you were but essentially been the, the five months of this distorted alternative reality that we kind of inhabit so the place where I want to start off and ask is uh, how have you been doing how have you been holding up yeah so it's it's been a lot. Um, just a lot of changes, a lot of things up in the air. Um, I think uh, universities are in their uh, new place, I would call it, complicated place. And so working in university, um, I was completing a postdoc at the University of Delaware um, this past spring, and everything kind of shut down, switched to uh, shelter in place there. Um, starting the new position at Georgetown, uh, which is a, you know, a very strange time to be starting a new job in a new place. Um, there's just a lot, transitions are already, uh, can already be challenging. And so this definitely uh, compounded some of those challenges. Um, but all that said, I feel very fortunate uh, to be in a space of employment um, in a sector where um, I personally was not faced with uh, a job cut or a job loss. Um, so I'm kind of counting my blessings at this particular moment. Well, it's good to hear that you've been doing well, relatively speaking. I feel like I always have to throw in that relatively speaking qualifier whenever we talk about uh, what constitutes doing well during, as I mentioned, like this just kind of reality that we inhabit right now. But as you mentioned, uh, Georgetown, their semester will be starting this upcoming Wednesday, uh, for those listening, that's actually today. But before getting into specific questions about how uh, this semester is kind of going to operate for you in terms of teaching, I want to throw it over to you and just ask this very general question of what are your thoughts and where are you kind of at as classes get underway? Yeah, I feel like I am... I think some, like some people just trying to make sure my head is above water. Um, faculty have been asked to um, prepare courses completely remotely, synchronously and asynchronously. So um, the ability to do it live in person and the ability for students to log on kind of at their own um, pace or availability. So Georgetown being an international um, university in that there are students from all across the world. Some of the students are gonna be in other time zones, both within the States and abroad. So just trying to think through 
how to effectively render a course in an online format, period. Then also trying to do that in ways that seem accessible to students um, with their various needs, uh, one of which is uh, asynchronous needs. So that's a very new space for me. And I mean, in addition to teaching online, this will be my first time teaching completely online as opposed to just using some online components. So I'm just trying to make sure my I's are dotted and my T's are crossed. Um, yeah. I do want to get into the, like the process of having to plan out an entire semester's course load with the, the pandemic in mind, as you've alluded to, but I'm curious as to what Georgetown's process of transitioning to online learning was like. Was it something that was always going to be a sure thing, considering how the last several months have gone with a lot of universities uh, transitioning to online learning to finish out their spring uh, semesters or quarters? Or was this something that they were kind of waiting to see how it would develop and something they eventually transitioned to? Well, so I'll speak from my very limited knowledge of that process um, because I was just kind of finished my onboarding as of August, uh, the first week of August. So very, very new. Um, so I don't want to speak, you know, um, on behalf of the university. Um, and I don't, definitely don't want to speak um, to the whole process because I wasn't a part of it. Um, but as far as I've collected, I think Georgetown, like other universities, um, was um, had various plans in place in terms of uh, rounding out the previous academic year, looking toward the summer, and you know just trying to pay attention to um, the geographic spikes um, in uh, pandemic locations and intensity and severity, um, and trying to put into place. Uh, stocks of PPE, right? Thinking about scheduling, thinking about which students, if any, which staff or faculty, if any, could be on campus and kind of what the stakes are of that. So I really feel like my understanding of what a lot of universities have done is just really try to understand the stakes of having, you know, trying to have everyone back on campus, the stakes of having a, a percentage of people on campus, but also the real, very real stakes of not having classes on campus at all because uh, the viability of higher ed as an institution has been changing um, over the past couple of decades anyway. So the real financial stakes, um, the real kind of stakes in terms of, I guess, more ideological, right, of where higher ed fits, um, where the pursuit of knowledge fits in a very real struggling economy right, in the U.S. Um, I think it's all very, it's, it's all up in the air. It's all in transition. And so my understanding is that a lot of universities have been trying to find ways to, to stay afloat, but also to do it in a way that acknowledges humanity. Um, but, it, that, you know, it doesn't also lose the, the very real importance of the pursuit of of knowledge. And I'm curious as to what the the situation is like on the physical campus because you alluded to how it's going to be remote learning. Um, I Well, I'm, I'm actually curious, do you know if like the STEM courses are going to be doing some in-person stuff? I, I'm not 100% sure just because the updates come in in, in waves and uh, depending on um, which school. Um, so letters and and sciences 
or it might be literature and arts. I'm still actually learning this particular institution's uh, terminology, um, but I know that I've seen uh, different updates uh, for different universities, um, thinking about the necessity for people in STEM to be in labs and, you know, the research needing to continue. So um, there, there might be stipulations that uh, people in labs are, are starting to go back, um, but that's not something, that's not my area, so I'm not completely apprised of that information. Yeah. And even though you have uh, been, you are remote uh, from the actual campus, do you know what the, the situation is kind of like on campus in terms of whether it's like there's still kind of like these clusters of people or is it, is it like kind of like a ghost town there right now? I would imagine it's a ghost town. Um, I, I don't know um, how it is, but I do know that there will be protocols imp- instituted if they haven't already been as of this month um, for people to have to kind of attest to their symptomology um, and to have something like a virtual health badge, um, I think is my understanding of it. So I'm sure if there wasn't already going to be uh, limits to who was accessing campus, either for their own desire or the institutional kind of afforded access, uh, this extra kind of protocol would definitely deter large numbers of people from coming to campus. I got you. The reason that I ask is because I've seen the the situation at Cal where they've had, um, there's been a couple of positive cases, most of them stemming uh, from, I believe, frat parties. And then I have some friends at uh, Georgia, I have some friends at Auburn, and the situation there isn't great as well. I actually have a, I have a photographer friend who was taking photos, I think, of Auburn students at bars, and some of them even, like, wanted to like they were smiling and like, you know how like when someone has a camera, they try to get in the photo and it's that like, that's kind of the reason that I ask because like, I think it really depends like what pocket of the country you go into in terms of how it's being handled, who's on campus. But if it's a ghost town, I'd be ha- like, I would hope that it's airs on like the side of ghost town just because like as someone that is uh, t- like 21, I can attest that a lot of uh, 21 and unders aren't exactly uh, exercising their best judgment at this point in time. So hopefully there's not that situation developing out in, a, in DC. On right. Campus. Yeah, no, I, I know that the university had concerns about, um, you know, kind of what further risk the city of DC has by universities bringing their students on the campus, which again, I think is similar to other universities across the country, uh, which is if we kind of been trying to get the situation under control in our locale. What does it mean to bring students from all over the country and in some cases all over the world to this locale? And then if, as you say, some of them are especially not attuned um, to kind of the risk landscape of the city, of the campus, of their dormitories, then, you know, what what role does the university play in that? And what role should the university play in that? And I think we are seeing this in the play out of UNC Chapel Hill, what's happening there. I have a friend who works at Syracuse. Um, there are some things happening there in terms of student kind of disregard um, or, you know, just other COVID spikes, uh, which is unfortunate in terms of risk, but also in terms of what what the impact is, maybe what the loss is, but also could just be a statement on, you know, the 
where the rubber meets the road in terms of all the plans and all of the desire to kind of have a certain type of normalcy in a moment that's that can be is nothing close to 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 what we've experienced in a lifetime. Yeah, and in terms of what you alluded to, like that degree of normalcy, it's it's kind of I think the best way that I can describe it, and this is like um as someone that's kind of like a sports fan in this moment is like I'm watching these games and I'm thinking like even though it's like providing this like sliver of normalcy like there's all of these elements surrounding it where I'm thinking yeah this is not like normal and I think that's like the same with kind of every pocket of life that you see whether it be like sports or academia I feel like I could list off like a hundred different areas of life where that's applicable where like even if you kind of try to operate it's still like in the back of your mind you're thinking like this is not <laughs> the the normal circumstances uh, you mentioned uh unc chapel hill did you see their student paper like what their editorial headline was i didn't so they played on the like the terminology of how like there were various clusters mm-hmm. of students who tested positive and they i forgot exactly what it is i don't have it in front of me but I think their editorial headline was like UNC has a clusterfuck on their hands, which that like when you when you, typically when you see like a collegiate newspaper going viral, it's for reasons like that. And yeah. it was that's a bold little stand to take. I remember that like that was one of those things where I feel like every journalism friend of mine was just like that was like the hot topic of conversation. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, but yeah, the situation on that campus, like others, is. I mean, a lot of people are talking about it because of of just kind of like what I've been saying, the stakes of it all. So to have a, a, a plan to go forth boldly with it and to see it kind of disintegrate um, in the first few weeks, uh, a lot of universities were taking cue. And I would say probably also like corporations, because a lot of industries are, you know, have various tiers of their um staff working remotely so I think people were kind of looking at some of these universities to see well what was their plan how well did it work is it going to work and what does that mean for you know us or what we might be able to do it's kind of like this is like a, a copycat mentality except like there's no there's like everybody that's copying from like one another there's no, there's no like foundation there there's no like extended history. It's like, all right, they're doing this. It's like, maybe we'll take like this little aspect of like what they're doing and we'll take like this little aspect, but it's a lot of just like adjusting on the fly in terms of like what is potentially viable here. And I mean, the hope is that like, this isn't something that they have to continue to do that like by the end of next year that, or by the end of this year, I hope it's not by the end of next year, but by the end of I this year, <laughs> it's like, all right, let's just start like, like, progressing back into the normal whatever the new normal is um but I do want to get into uh the preparation for this semester I imagine uh, planning a a class for an entire semester is difficult in and of itself and I remember when I had uh, you as a professor there would be days where we would like watch like clips in the middle of our discussions and as someone that was finishing up classes back in March, I can attest to how difficult it is to just like throw, to watch like a five minute clip. Um, how have you had to adjust uh, your schedule in terms of like the coursework with the remote learning in mind? So something that, uh, so Georgetown has, um, they had these course design institutes over the summer for faculty 
Um, and I participated in an abbreviated one because I wasn't yet um, onboarded, um, but something that they told us there in preparation for um, remote teaching was that um, they advised if we did live Zoom sessions with students and not have them exceed an hour, if we do recorded lectures, to have them in like eight minute snippets. And so that in itself is a challenge in part because the classes I'm, the class I'm scheduled to teach is longer than an hour per session, right? So thinking through something like they said, suggested if you have a whole hour of a Zoom lecture, maybe you have the remaining, you capture the remaining 15 minutes with something like a discussion board immediately after class and that would be considered in class time but you have to distinguish that from like homework so there are a lot of things to just kind of keep in mind and i think it's going to be new for a lot of people despite the kind of switch to online in the spring i think starting off and intending for class to be online as opposed to just kind of reacting to the university dictates is, is a little bit different so I'm definitely still actually thinking through what might work best in terms of my course design because um, it, it usually flows a bit from text to text if we're discussing an article or an essay versus a feature-length film um, versus maybe something in between that, like an interview clip. So um, it'll be some trial and error, <laughs> and that seems to be consensus amongst my colleagues too. Um, definitely having um, having a plan and then trying to keep the communication line as open as possible, which I try to do anyway in my courses. But I, I'm definitely, I've already sent out like a pre-course survey to see where my students are, what time zones they're coming from, what technology they have, if they feel safe in their homes, right? Just things that we're thinking about as instructors usually, but they don't come to bear on the actual experience of instruction in, this, in all of the same ways that they are right now. So I'm just trying to hold all of that in mind to make sure I can actually reach my students, um, but also think about what of my course material needs to be changed or what of my assignments needs to change. I usually have like a, a low tech zone paragraph in my syllabus because I think it's really important to be present in the classroom um, as opposed to students being distracted on social media, online shopping, whatever they might be doing, catching up on work for another class. Um, and this is the space where I can't do that. It's like, we're gonna all be on our computers and we're all gonna be at home and there's gonna be a lot of unforeseen circumstances that might impact their in-class presence. So trying to figure out what my policies are gonna be around that. I, I'm still tweaking my syllabus um, and class is starting very soon, so. It'll definitely be a trial and error uh, for a lot of instructors this semester. Yeah, it sounds like there's going to be like a lot of adapting on the fly where it's not just a plan B, but it's a plan C and D, E, F all the way through Z. Just because of, as you alluded to, you have a lot of students that are coming from different time zones. So you can't just have this one like like one o'clock Eastern time like or whatever time that the class usually would have been. Or as you alluded to, the, the low tech policy where that's impossible because like by virtue of virtual learning, you have to have technology. So a lot of just trying to see like what works, what doesn't. And like given that 
like when I was when I had class um, back in March, when we transitioned to online learning, it felt like every single week we were trying something new. Like for the first two weeks, I think we did like all just from like the beginning to the end. It was all just Zoom. Like, but then by the end of it, we were doing like here's like a recorded lecture. Then we hop on a Zoom chat. So I feel like it's just like a like kind of going by feel more yeah. than anything instead of just like a definite like this is what we're gonna do. Yeah, but at the same time, I, I kind of, it's important in a lot of learning environments um, to have consistency and predictability because it gives it a sense of structure. Even if you're not doing the same thing every class, there's a general sense of like, okay, maybe on Tuesday we lecture and Thursday we have discussion and, you know, or things like that. And so it's like how to both go with the flow um, and get that constant feedback from students about what's working, what's not working, colleagues, you know, and faculty meetings, whatever. Um, but also have it be something a little bit more structured for everyone so that when we're showing up, we're not drained by just the process of figuring out what it's going to be today, you know, <laughs> which different technology or format are we going to do today. So um, it'll be somewhere in between the two. And it'll be a lot of patience on all sides, I think, needed. Um, this semester but really this academic year because we still don't know what the spring holds and what universities will say about that. Yeah and what you alluded to consistency that's something that I hadn't even factored into all this because now that I kind of think about it like whenever I had like a set like class list during a semester I'm thinking all right this is a class where it's going to be lecture oriented so I don't have to worry about the teacher like calling on me in the middle I could just focus on taking notes or this class is a discussion oriented. So like, what are some points that I might want to bring up based on what we read? So that's a, like, in you mentioning that, it seems like that's a very, I don't know if under, not underrated. That's a, it's like a sneakily important thing that kind of like for me got lost in the shuffle of all of this transition to online learning where it's very hard to maintain consistency because of, as you alluded to, it's just this, this process of continuously tinkering when, this is all new for everybody. Right. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, some might think, oh, if you just lecture, then that makes it very consistent. Uh, you know, you have it, you record it, you put it up, or, you, you know, you do your Zoom, and then the students can ask questions, and then you give an assignment, and that's it. But um, I think some course content lends itself more to that, and maybe some course subjects, which is why they usually have the very large lecture halls. And so that might translate that way, but my courses have never been that. Um, so I have spots where I lecture, um, but a lot of, I think of my courses as seminars. So very heavily uh, involved with discussion with different types of group work, um, group thought. So it'll be interesting thinking about all the ways that technology allows for, for new types of setups, but also hinders what could be very organic and free flowing if we could, you know, be face-to-face. -face. Yeah, and thinking back to uh, when I had you as an instructor, I was thinking about, like, when we would do the readings, and I felt like that was a space that was conducive to everybody in that class being able to have a different interpretation of those readings based on their specific backgrounds. And I feel like that would be something that, like, you can't just, like, lecture and say, like, like there's like this one uniform thing where everybody's going to have the same interpretation of it. Like that's maybe that's something you can do with like STEM courses, but when it comes to the subject that you're teaching, it's a little more difficult to say, 
this is like this is it and you, like you there's no there's like no room for like shimmying at all it's just like that's it so yeah i do wonder like how that like like how professors specifically in humanities courses are going to go about that process of trying to both get that information like get like the core kind of information across while also creating that space that's conducive to like being like having that engaging conversation and i guess like speaking on like the subject of space i do i'm curious as to how, do you think that that aspect is going to get kind of lost in translation because of the lack of being able to share a physical space i hope not um but i feel like in some ways it could be inevitable at least the you know kind of space sharing as we know it is going to be forever altered at least in the foreseeable future right so how we're contending with it in this moment is really going to define what space sharing looks like going forward and this is both in the classroom or the site of the classroom it's not this the space of the classroom anymore um but also you know in society so um i what i hope is that through i guess learning technologies um we're able to capture the essence of what we had in those moments in the classroom and have them translate into online spaces but again we're at the uh, mercy of technology and kind of our own facility with the technology too and our own knowledge of it because there are so many out there we can't have them all we can't use them all we can't master them all right and we can't require our students to either so this technology allows this like zoom offers breakout rooms so i'll be making use of some breakout rooms with students but I know every breakout room I've been in in a meeting, it kind of like very abruptly ends and kind of tosses everyone back into the main, you know, discussion space. And that feels a lot more abrupt than what I would do in a classroom, which is just kind of walk around the classroom, see how everyone's doing. When I kind of hear people, the volume get lower and people are discussing less, then we'll kind of bring it back. Um, so there are things that just have to be more and rigid I guess, um, because that's what the technology kind of um, requires, I guess, just like you can't necessarily have a space where more than one person is talking in the ways that you could in a classroom. I mean, that'd be great in terms of just like side conversation, but, you know, just in terms of someone starts to speak and someone's still finishing their thought and you can listen to all of it at the same time, I feel like with Zoom. It's very much a, okay, you have to raise your hand and you have to raise your hand and, you know, <laughs> um, it's a lot less organic. Yeah, I've been able to have like a couple, uh, like aside from like classes, I've been able to have like some Zoom meetings with like a handful of people. And there are those moments where like someone will cut out, someone's video will freeze or like two people will start to talk at the same time. And it's like, you don't have that, like you can't have that indicator like when you know someone's about to talk and then like you can kind of jump in so the transition is a little more choppy but I think they're like even in the virtual world I think there kind of is that potential like it's going to be a, like the transition will be a little more difficult than what we're accustomed to but just like for me based on like the limited experiences and I do say like this it's a different experience like with a group of friends opposed to an entire classroom but I think and I'd like to hope that, that that potential can translate to the actual 
classroom sphere. And I guess like dipping into like my experiences in like a Zoom classroom, like there were moments when we were able to have that like dialogue where like, yeah, occasionally someone's like audio did get choppy or like someone's like connection got lost. But like there would be like these moments where it's like, oh, I felt like I was in a classroom again. Like, yeah, it was it was completely different. I'm in my room. But for like kind of like zeroing in and just like being present, being in that moment, it felt like I was in the classroom again. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm very hopeful that, you know, students have that experience this semester because we're all kind of contending with a lot, not the least of which is, you know, stable broadband connection. Uh <laughs> yeah, and I think for, like, I can't, well, I, I guess I can kind of speak to, like, what a student would be, like, going, because I, I just, I just graduated. It's not, I'm not too far removed from it. But like, well, as you alluded, thank you very much. <laughs> but as you kind of alluded to, like, I feel like considering that there's a lot of instability just in the world that we inhabit right now, that the classroom would become like a sanctuary in a way that it has, I don't want to say it's never been, but I feel like there's like an increased importance because of just the general instability of the world that we inhabit right now. Yeah, I think what this moment really kind of, foregrounds or kind of brings clarity to is how some spaces of sanctuary as you said like the classroom maybe some other spaces too um, have been those kind of sanctuary spaces for some of us this whole time it just hasn't been as many of us right and so it, it it really helps us to pay attention to the kind of special quality of some of these privileged spaces, right? Um, to be able to congregate in a place that you can go to with regularity, have your fees, you know, paid in some way, whether it's you or your parents or a scholarship or work study and be able to, to engage in conversation and thought um, and how for some people, that maybe is the space and the time and, and that's it, right? That's that's a part of the stability. So I think for us all to be in a, a, a moment of turmoil, a season of turmoil, really, um, in unprecedented ways all at once, really brings light to that fact. So I want to pivot to, uh, from discussing uh, the coursework, or to discussing the coursework in relation uh, to the historical moment that we inhabit, not only in regards to uh, coronavirus, but how uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has captured the collective attention of the United States and even the entire world in a way that, at least from my ex like from like my experience, like I haven't seen or felt. So I'm curious as to how you see your class working in conjunction with the current moment that we inhabit. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, so my class that I'm teaching this semester is on the Harlem Renaissance and the Black Chicago Renaissance. So we're literally 100 years out um, from the start of the, Chicago, the Harlem Renaissance. And so to think about a century ago, what were the questions that Black activists, Black artists, Black artists as activists were asking about Black representation um, about Black rights, about, you know, having space to create the art that reflects life 
black life. Um, some of those questions have been recurring through a decade since. Um, and so to have students both reflect historically um, and engage historically on, you know, what came before this moment, but also the commonalities and the threads and the calls for justice that are always being renewed, that are never new. Um, you know, they take different shapes um, with the historical context. And so we have the, his, the context of the day, but um, calls for, for justice, calls for, you know, recognition of black humanity. These are centuries old uh, cries for justice. So um, I think that, I mean, studying anything on African-American history is always timely. Um, and it's, it's usually untimely in ways that feel um, unfortunate in that there are these um, unresolved cries uh, for justice, right? Um, these requests, uh, these demands that have yet to be met fully um, by the state, by society. So we have that, but also you have a very rich period in history uh, of artistic expression, um, of sociality, of um, participation in kind of like intellectual life in a way that I also think we are had, we're seeing a resurgence of in a different way um, across class and race um, because of the, of the moment that we're in, in part because everyone's had to be at home and they're like, what books can I read and what this and what that, or they're paying attention to the news or they're paying attention to the, the social media and they're seeing that, okay, these things that I maybe had the comfort or the privilege of not acknowledging at all or in full, they kind of have my attention now. And so um, I think there was a similar moment uh, with uh, the start of the Harlem Renaissance. So you had the 1918 uh, Spanish flu pandemic happening, or was it 1917, one of those years. And then 1919, you have what they call the Red Summer, which was a summer of race riots around the country. Um, that was sparked by the stoning of a youth, a uh, Black youth in Chicago. And there are race riots all over the country. And that's in 1919. And responses to that, artistic responses to that are what scholars say launched the Harlem Renaissance. And so part of me is like, wow, the resonance, right? To be able to teach a class like that at this particular moment, but also to think ahead about what, what might we be seeing that will be coming in the next few months, few years, right? That are in step with this moment, but are also might be reflective in some ways or extensions of the Harlem Renaissance period. And in terms of what you were discussing in terms of like the artistic production, I think it's, and, and I hadn't even reflected on this until like right now, but to be living in a moment where like there's various like art forms that are being produced act. I, I feel like the only way to say it is like actively because when you find like a piece of art that's like, that has historical properties to it, you're not only engaging in the art itself, but the moment in which it was produced. And Absolutely. there can be aspects of it where it's like, you can read it, but it's hard to kind of fully understand it just because you weren't around, you weren't like around there. for a time. Exactly. Yeah, it's, we're living history. I mean, that's how I've been thinking about it. I mean, as we always are, of course, right? Who determines what gets to be historical and what doesn't, right? Um, but 
yeah, we 2020, this is a year for the books. Um, it's, it's so many things at once and it's so many things at once that touches so many people at once. And I think that's the uniqueness of the moment, right? Um, there are many things happening around the world in this country on any given day, on any given year um, that touches many people. But this has forced us to slow down, to pay attention. And by us, I mean very broadly us. Some of us have been paying attention, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, I think to be in a moment that feels so shared, um, although we can acknowledge the ways that different people are differently impacted, right, by the moment, I think that that's something that that maybe this country does hasn't experienced in a while, um, and arguably is something that might not happen except in times of, let's say, war. Honestly, um, that feels like it's a little bit more unifying. Although, again, still people are differently impacted, but there's a certain attention that's paid um, across a lot of people where everyone kind of has to engage the conversation, even if it's just to actively ignore, you know, deny that it's something that should be paid attention to, it, it provokes, it provokes acknowledgement. And that's the type of moment that we're in. And that's, I think that's the type of moment that was happening at the period of say the Harlem Renaissance, right? Um, people had to pay attention and not just because of the arts, right? Not everyone cared about maybe the arts, but there was something happening that was more than just what we what we now have as remnants of it, right? As expressions of it that lasted. Yeah, I think I speak for both of us when I'd say like the like we kind of hope that the circumstances in which these conversations were being brought up would be, I guess to put it like a kind of light term, I think they'd be better circumstances to to put it very uh, lightly. But in I guess one of the the silver linings, and I use that term very uh, kind of loosely, is that because of the confluence of factors, it's been a period where you can't like you can't divert your eyes away from these conversations that are being had. If you're, and again, like the kind of the sports like person in me, it's like if you watch basketball right now, you can't avoid that conversation. And one of the the kind of questions when the NBA was resuming was how do you keep these conversations relevant and not make the game a distraction? And you look on the court and the court says black lives matter. And you look at the player's jerseys and it has, it, it kind of these kind of, t I will say there are a little toned down because there's a, there's a, the NBA did kind of restrict what they can say, but it's, you see these jerseys with like how many more equality or if there's European players, they're saying equality in like their native language. Or if you even like major league baseball, which is a historically conservative sport to see on opening weekend, everybody kind of holding um, a black rope and kneeling. I do think there's kind of a performative aspect to that, but that's an entirely different conversation or even, definitely, <laughs> or even I have to, I got to hold myself back from getting into that entire uh, line, but even something like NASCAR where right. they're like fully embracing the need to take steps forward and just banning the Confederate flag all, all together and standing uh, behind a uh, Bubba Wallace, who I believe is the only African-American uh, driver out of everybody. That's kind of, I'm not sure how like NASCAR kind of works, but yeah, to see this like conversation being had and these like, in kind of every pocket of life 
And like, again, I think we wish that could happen under better circumstances. It didn't take like a pandemic and the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others for this to be relevant. But like, as you alluded to, like maybe these things kind of only happen in like times of war. Yeah, I think that, again, it's an unprecedented moment. It's, well, arguably unprecedented. Um, We like to say that. I think it's arguably precedented um, (laughs) for no other reason than ways that I I was stating about, say, the 1919 moment, right? But um, in ways that many, most people who are currently living um, besides centenarians, right, have not seen a moment or experienced a moment like this. And so, um, yeah, to not make it all in vain, the struggle, right, the loss, um, in so many ways that so many people have experienced um, finding our lane and making our impact there. So even though you're not at the, the Georgetown campus physically, I'm curious as to what's the feeling of teaching this particular class? As you mentioned, it's basically a century part, um, not only technically in the nation's capital and like I say that technically, <laughs> um, but during an election, not only an election year, but when it's going to coincide with the election come November. Yeah, it's it's a lot. And I, I, I wonder how the semester would be actually being present on campus, right? I think there would be, um, it would be maybe even more intense of a feeling. Um, I think being remote, uh, I don't want to say diffuses it. I think we all feel the moment (laughs) very kind of poignantly. Um, But I think I'm teaching a class that's a 200 level class, so kind of thinking at the sophomore level, but not restricted um, in terms of class who can take the class. So thinking about just, I built into my my, um, course schedule this semester to have, I'm teaching on Tuesday, Thursday to have election day off. So we're not all, the university is not giving us that as far as I know. And with the shift to online, because there was a moment where there was going to be um, perhaps some students on campus, there was um, an extension of kind of Thanksgiving holiday break to be that full week. And so with giving those couple of days at the beginning of that week that we usually don't get, they um, changed it so that Labor Day, um, there are classes in session, and there's another day, um, Indigenous Peoples Day, right, or what some people still acknowledge as Columbus Day, would be um, classes in session when usually it's not. So um, I've, Election Day is an important day, whether or not you're eligible to vote, um, which uh, hopefully if my students are eligible, they will. I know there's going to be a lot of mail-in ballots, so maybe they're won't be as many people standing in line, but I don't want to take any of that space to encroach upon um, very valuable like time to exercise <laughs> voting rights for my students. And I, I want to live the space to acknowledge right the, the importance and the significance of it. So um, I, I hope that in teaching and my students studying the material that I've selected, and that we maybe co-select in terms of discussion, 
um, that they'll be informed um, and feel the urgency if they don't already, right? Um, yeah. I remember I had a, a class on election night in 2016, and I suffice it to say, like, that my mind was not <laughs> completely centered on the class. It was kind of like one of those, like, low-tech zones, too, but I, like, I had my, I put my book, and I had my phone, and I was just, like, constantly refreshing to see, like, what states, had, like, who had won what state, so, yeah, I think, well, actually, I'm curious, were you on Cal's campus in 2016? I was. Oh, man. <laughs> do you want to share what that night was like? Because I, I was a I was a freshman. Those were the dorms, and the the one thing I'll say is that it was just when it was kind of apparent that a uh, number forty five was gonna lock in the win. It was just a lot of yelling, a lot of yelling, and a lot of a uh, a certain song by YG. It was a lot of that. <laughs> so I wasn't actually present physically present on the campus that evening. I did teach a class the next day. I was I remember I was guest lecturing actually. Uh, for a class on early African-American literature in the English department. Um, so I do remember that class um, because it wasn't my class. And I was teaching, it might have been The Marrow of Tradition, or it might have been Souls of the Black Folk, one of them. I taught, I stood in for that class a few times that semester. Um, and I just remember taking cupcakes to class um, because I didn't know who would show up, honestly. Um, I think uh, more than half the class showed up, but I was like, well, if we have to be here, you know, we're going to do the work, but, you know, here's <laughs> a little something uh, to hopefully bring a, a little a little lightness to the day because it felt like a very, it felt like a time where I realized that being from the East Coast, um, how sometimes people say California is another country, right? <laughs> the kind of liberal uh I don't want to say bubble. It's not a bubble at all. But in that moment, it felt like it, it was because it felt like my people back on the East Coast had a different anticipation um, of what the outcome might have been um, or maybe was going to be. There was a, a hope and an optimism, but then there was also a kind of acknowledgement that this was something that could happen, whereas it felt like being on Cal's campus um, being in the Bay Area, it, I felt blindsided in ways that it didn't seem like some people in other places in the country felt. So I thought that was a very interesting kind of disjuncture for me. It's like, oh, I've been in California too long, you know? <laughs> yeah, I could definitely say that from a majority of people. I don't even remember talking to anyone in particular that night. It was just, I like, I remember these vague, like, just the feeling. And I feel like just as someone that's been in California my entire life there was that feeling of like getting blindsided I remember my old um, AP Gov teacher he tweet ah, what did he do he said that there was like virtually zero chance that what happened happened and then like the, I remember the next day on Twitter he was like I was wrong and like he wore it but it was yeah like I I will say that like just as someone that's not the um to put it lightly, the biggest uh, proponent of like Cal as being as as having that same luster as it did back in like with the TWLF, as someone that does like to pinpoint the how do I, I don't, how do I put this I don't even know how to put this lightly I just, I'm gonna just say I'm not like the biggest uh, fan of Cal in terms of the the semantics aspect of it but 
even even it, though it kind of lost like i think it's kind of lost its luster in that regard it just being on that moment or being in that like physical space and like a a campus that has so much history embedded into it and having the night go how it went it was just this super surreal feeling and then being a, i was also like on campus for the, the milo thing too like not just yeah. on campus but i was kind of in the mix of it so being there for both of those things that was a very very abrupt introduction to i don't think abrupt is the right word but a very getting like thrown so much in like such a short amount of time as a little yeah as a little freshman yeah <laughs> you survived though <laughs> yeah but i'm curious like even like even though like you aren't going to be physically there for the election like what's kind of the like have you kind of internalized like what it means to be like as i alluded to like on cal and then uh, like georgetown like like even though you aren't there physically just like being like associated I, I think that's the best way to say it being associated with both of those places on like two of the most important election nights of our lifetime yeah i mean i think there might be a bit of a i don't want to say a disjuncture it's not a disjuncture because i'm very much in the throes of wrapping my mind around being you know a faculty member at Georgetown that's new as of, you know, I'm three weeks in, right? <laughs> um, so there's some, um, you know, mental transition that happens with that. But, you know, physically not being on the campus, I think does have uh, a little bit of a remove, right? Um, in terms of kind of the gravity of being in that space. Uh, which I think I write currently am grateful for because being in DC anyway can be can feel intense sometimes walking around with all of the people who work on Capitol Hill and work for all the government organizations etc um, and just a very kind of political or governmental vibe <laughs> even in kind of social life sometimes so um, to and then that's intensified on campus, right? We're coming for the very serious study of very serious topics, right? <laughs> so to have a little bit of that remove in uh, what will be a historic, you know, election moment, I, I'm, I'm grateful for that, honestly, physically, because I think a lot of what we carry does manifest in our bodies, whether or not we want to acknowledge it, and whether or not we, it shows up for us in the moment or down the line. So to have that bit of physical remove for me, I'm actually very grateful for, even if still affiliated very much um, with the university and thus um, the city in which it's located. Yeah, I know on like on Twitter, these terms kind of get over like overused to death, but like like energy and vibes are like a real like palpable thing. So I could imagine. Like if it was if it was feeling one type of way at Cal in 2016, I could imagine just like all that would go into that and that feeling, like being physically there in 2020. So I think even even with the physical removal, I think the like I, I don't I don't know what you have planned for like the day like the next class after the election, but I feel like that cl like that class might take on like a different tone depending on what happens. <laughs> I think regardless of what happens, honestly, I think just because there's so much anticipation of what might happen, of ha what might be, 
um, as, as I think there is kind of every election, right? Um, at least every presidential election, there should there should be more of that <laughs> at the local levels, but um, for for many reasons um, that isn't the case. But yeah, I think either way, I was actually trying to figure out if I should have the class day of the election or the class day after the election be the day that I don't have class scheduled just because <laughs> of kind of what you're alluding to um, because we don't know how to go and either way there are, will be consequences consequences both you know um, like a, a spectrum of consequences I should say so what what comes up that moment of that day and what will maybe still be in process even we've seen elections take you know days to get results back because of recounts and because of you know contestations on things like mail-in ballots right which we're going to be using a lot more of and everything going on with the USPS right now it's a it's it's scary to think about all of the factors that are really coming to play yeah, if we just isolate everything that's happened, like in this year, like from like as things that we've alluded to, it's like coronavirus, like the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement taking center stage in like the nation's consciousness, the like as you alluded to the like the postal service and then unemployment, uh, the uh, homelessness potential crisis that's upon us, and there's probably there are so many other things that I'm not even alluding to, but the fact that all of these are happening in an election year as well, it does bode for a, I, I, I don't like to get like too uh, sensational, but I feel like it's not sensational to say this is going to make for uh, the most, most interesting to put it lightly, the most interesting election of, at least I'd like to say of like my lifetime. I don't, but, yeah, it might be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it very well might be. It, it very much might be, but uh uh, to transition from the talks of uh, the teaching aspect of things, I know that you had a, a book proposal that you sent out recently, and I'm curious as to uh, what other projects uh, besides, uh, I, don't want, I don't know if teaching qualifies as a project, but in terms of that arena, what are some things that you've been uh, working on during these last several months? And of the uh, projects that you've been working on, what's kind of, how has the pandemic uh, influence them? I think that's a good question. Um, so um, since the shutdown, really, um, I think initially I kind of just stepped back, took stock of myself, you know, my life, my loved ones, um, checked in and kind of very, was very intentional. Well, it might have been a little bit more reactive at that point just because everything was very overwhelming. So it kind of forced me to step back um, and, and kind of take a break from all of that um, to assess what it was that I was doing. I mean, I had to also drop, drop things to figure out in terms of, you know, I, all of a sudden I couldn't go to campus and access my office. And so it was just, it kept being extended and then it was, you know, just protocol things. So there's kind of very, that's kind of logistical aspects of doing work and shifting abruptly, which I think um, many people experience. Um, but then it was also just a what mental capacity, what emotional capacity do I have to um, continue the work that I was doing or 
um, to, to start new projects. Um, I had a number of talks that were canceled um, due to the shutdown that weren't shifted to an online format. They were just canceled. So they were there um, in the what can be a somewhat unstructured, um, at least like not given structure, um, life of, of faculty. <laughs> Um, there are moments such as conferences, speaking engagements, class preparation, of course, um, that kind of gives our days and weeks structure. And so having a number of invited presentations just be canceled, not even postponed. It was like, oh, there was a certain shift in, in pace or attention that presentations allow me. And those things were kind of, those outlets were kind of taken away. Um, the space to just kind of maintain momentum, I feel like was evacuated for me. I know for some people they felt a little bit more energized because focusing on their work helped to give them some sense of control. Um, for me, I need to be in certain spaces to, to be able to be in touch with what it is that I want to say, um, with even, you know, being able to put things on the page, um, in any sense of coherence, um, and not like polished, just coherence uh, to me to even be able to come back at a different session and understand what it is that I was trying to say. So um, I think it's really important for people to acknowledge their spaces and their practices, right? So for me, my research or writing practice, um, it, it needs to be in touch with myself. Um, and sometimes it's not like good or bad days. You know, sometimes people just say show up and write. And I think that there is something um, to be said for that. I think that the past few months have been a, a different, a very different moment. And I think people have tried to give more space to um, give themselves a little bit more latitude, right? To see how much they've been working, pat themselves on the back for doing that work that they did, pat themselves on the back for doing whatever work they're doing. Um, so over the, so after kind of taking a step back at the end of the semester, as all the transitions were happening and figuring out what my transition to Georgetown might look like, um, I knew that teaching this semester was going to be um, a big lift just because it was going to be my first time teaching online if I needed to as I waited to to hear if I would be and so I wanted to make sure I got some research you know work done uh, so I could devote more day-to-day -day time this semester on teaching as I also kind of continued some of that research work so the book proposal um, was a lot of that work I was also revising an article that's under review um, related to the book project so and then just kind of doing other logistical things. Uh, as I said, transitions are very involved, especially institutionally. So things like making sure my Google Drive <laughs> documents are copied over to somewhere I can access them before my other institutional email got cut off. And no one really gives you a guide for what things you'll have access to and which things you won't, you mostly won't. So it was a lot of just making sure the things that I built in the span of a year um, and all those technological spaces I had access to or copies of. Um, so that was <laughs> a lot of work as well. So that, I think that's kind of how I spend my time in terms of how I'm thinking about my work in this particular moment. 
Um, I am both aware of the new space I am starting in as a new faculty on the tenure track. Um, so there's a certain momentum uh, to that space that I, I want to make sure I'm positioning myself well for. Uh, but also, um, I think there's a teaching, being trained in African-American studies, I think, is at this particular moment, I feel like I've seen kind of two, I don't want to say camps because that seems oppositional, but um, ways that people are maybe manifesting in the moment, uh, their work is manifesting in the moment. I think on the one hand, you have again the people who I feel like have dug uh, deep down and just kind of been hyper, like, I don't want to say hyper productive, but extremely productive. And they're in all the public forums or many of them and um, maybe even more so than usual. And for some people, if they hadn't been previously, maybe they are now, or, you know, it's kind of promoting the work they've done, which I think is very important because I think it's very important for people to, who have, um, who not only care about these things, but have done some of that work, right? Um, and I think in the other camp, we see some people kind of falling back um, and kind of take, trying to take care of themselves in their lives, right? Because again, the way that this is all impacting us, um, it is varied and we're not privy to everyone's personal lives, right? So um, I feel like currently I'm in that moment of transition and trying to still understand what this moment is and will look like uh, for the foreseeable future and how do I manage the things that are going on in my personal life with those things that are going on in my professional life and trying to start off the tenure track in a way that feels comfortable for me to manage, right, in the midst of all of this, um, but also setting myself up for success in the future. Um, so I have some thoughts on things that I might write um, as kind of thinking about what we were talking about earlier with the course, right, um, how the moment, the 1919 moment relates uh, to the current moment. And, you know, I've seen some people making those connections and I have some thoughts of my own that I might lend to the conversation. Um, but right now I'm really, really focused on trying to get <laughs> my semester started with my course that, that has my full attention at the, at the current moment. Amani, I appreciate you taking the time out. I appreciate you uh, sharing your experiences. And with the semester coming up, I hope everything goes as smoothly as it could possibly can for you, <laughs> as well as the class. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks again for having me. Of course. Thank you.